Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. Now, full disclosure, I am recording this before the Super Bowl is over, so at this point, I have no idea who won. But you do. (laughs) So all I can say is that I hope it was a great game, and I hope the team you were rooting for, I hope they came through. (laughs) I was home for this weekend, uh, but on the road again this week. Headed to Arkansas for a couple days, spending the weekend in Denver, uh, and then another stretch of trainings next week, uh, back to Arkansas, Colorado, etc. I want to take the time right now, of course, to remind you of a few upcoming events. We've got the virtual Grading from the Inside Out two-day training happening April 5th and 12th. We'll be face-to-face in Des Moines, Iowa, March 28-29, and San Antonio, Texas, April 25th and 26th. Standards-based learning in action will also be in San Antonio uh, the two days following the Grading from the Inside Out training, April 27 and 28. So you can get four days in San Antonio and four days of training, two days on the mindset, two days on putting it into action. Uh, So like I said, four days in San Antonio is never a bad thing. All of the information for those events will be found on the Solution Tree website, and I'll have links in the show notes for all of them as well. Okay, as always, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. And a big thank you to longtime listeners. I appreciate all of you. Uh, This week, my guest is Allison Dillard. Allison is an adjunct math professor at Irvine City College, and she is the host of the Allison Loves Math podcast. So, of course, we're talking math today. Now, I know not everyone is a math teacher, but I promise you there is much in our conversation that is applicable to other subject areas as well. And in Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to continue my exploration of the importance of being trauma-informed with our assessment practices, and specifically today, I'm going to explore the impact trauma has on the brain and the assessment ramifications that could come with that. So, that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Allison Dillard is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with a plea to all educators, maybe a plea to the entire world, and that is please leave Wordle alone. Now, in case you're not familiar with Wordle, it has been the viral hit of 2022 so far. It's this online daily word game. You can only play it once a day. Every 24 hours, there's a new word of the day, and it's up to you to figure out what that word is. Now, what Wordle does is it gives you, as a player, six chances to guess a randomly selected five-letter word. If you have the right letter in the right spot, it shows up green. You have a correct letter, but it's in the wrong spot, it shows up yellow. And a letter that isn't in the word in any spot shows up gray. Now, you can enter a total of six words meaning you could enter five burner words from which you can learn hints about the letters and their placements, and then you get one chance to put those hints to use. Or you can try to guess the word as you go along to try to get it in three chances or two chances or four chances or whatever. And I rarely latch on to these viral trends, but I saw people posting their results on Wordle, and I thought, well, what's this Wordle thing everybody's doing? And then I tried it, I liked it, and now I'm in. It's simple but I find it incredibly compelling and fun. And we're already starting to ruin it. And I'm begging you, begging you, please stop. Now it was inevitable that we would start ruining it by taking something fun and overanalyzing it, dissecting it, and trying to make Wordle be more than it is. 
It's just a fun word game, people. Now, look, I understand we all want to win games. But are we now seriously hyper-focused on winning Wordle? It's challenging, especially on some days. But in some weird way, Wordle has offered me an escape from the busyness of my life. A chance to just do a quick word puzzle, guess correctly or not, and then get back to my real life. For me, it's fun. I post my results, as do many of my Facebook friends and my connections on Twitter. My buddy Steve and I, we text each other our results each day. It's just a fun thing to do. But now, oh, now, now we're seeing the blog posts and articles talking about what's the best word to use at the beginning of your Wordle, or should you always use the same word for Wordle? No, I use the same word 50% of the time, and the other 50% of the time, I, I'm hoping to, that I can guess the word in one or two tries. Why not? But it's all in good fun. And again, we're about to ruin it. I talked two weeks ago about ruining words. Well, now we're going to start ruining a fun game. Seriously, an entire blog post dedicated to the best Wordle strategy? Are we that fragile that if we don't guess a word in six tries, it's going to undercut our sense of self and make us feel less than others? Do you really feel some kind of superiority if you guess it in six or fewer tries? Like, what are we doing here? But, okay, look. You want to do well, you want a strategy, okay, I'll give you that, fine, fine, you can have a strategy. But here's what I'm bracing for, and you know it's coming. It's probably already here. You know, the headline, what your Wordle strategy says about your personality. God help me. Attend things your Wordle obsession reveals about your childhood. Wordle is like this mini crossword, one word every 24 hours. But once we educators start getting a hold of it, once we adults start overanalyzing it, we're going to destroy it. All right, kids, get out your phones. It's Wordle time. Let's go, right? And they'll be the kids who get it in two or three guesses, jumping out of their desks, celebrating like they just hit a game-winning shot in game seven, making the others feel stupid. There'll be that one kid who's always super competitive with everyone, having a meltdown because it took five tries today instead of his usual three, while his nemesis got it in two. I must be getting dumber, he'll think. Then there'll be three kids doing it together in the back corner. Of course, the teacher will be calling out to them. Hey, no cheating. You're supposed to be doing this on your own. There'll be four kids in the back of the room on TikTok who have no interest in doing Wordle at all. The teacher will confront them about being off task and they'll say, we don't care about Wordle, that's your thing. Well, they might not say it that way. Then there'll always be that one kid who ruins it for everyone by shouting out the word or using it in some way that's kind of an awkward sentence like, boy, that Mr. Shimmer sure does have a great sense of humor. Humor was last Wednesday's word. I can see it, a fun activity ruined by an overzealous attempt to bring Wordle into the classroom. What your student's average Wordle score says about your early literacy program. There will be the inevitable international rankings on average Wordle scores, and even though it's in English and so much of the world doesn't speak English as a first language, I'm sure we'll hear how Canada ranks ninth and the United States ranks 13th in average Wordle scores. See what I did there? <laughs> 
Then there'll be the inevitable backlash in the media calling for an overhaul of the education system because if our kids can't figure out a five-letter word and six guesses, how are we supposed to compete with the likes of China and India and Korea and Japan on a global stage? There'll be another call for the inevitable going back to basics. Project-based learning, how about we figure out five-letter words first? Please don't. I'm begging you. Leave it alone. Just let it be what it is. A fun daily game that people seem to enjoy doing. I already see the wordle shaming on social media if you accidentally make a mistake or don't get the right answer. You know, we have three letters correct and then accidentally use a word with only two letters correct because you forgot to use the third letter. Okay, yeah, it happens. But I, you know, for those of you who do Wordle, I don't know about you, but I often do Wordle when I'm doing something else. It's not like I'm taking a serious test here where I have to focus and my livelihood depends on it. But I see posts and then it comments like, oh, wow, I was uh, wondering what happened there. The wordle arrogance is going to be nauseating. I can see it coming. And it has me worried kind of legitimately because what should be a fun game is going to be riddled with anxiety. And then there will be the anti-wordle crowd that will refuse to try it just because it's trendy. I don't follow those frivolous trends. Everyone's doing it. Uh, not me. I don't succumb to that societal peer pressure. God help us all. We have a chance, people. A chance to rewrite the script. A chance to forever change the future course of viral cognitive trends. We can do it. I know we can. I've seen this movie before, and I implore you, please, 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 for the sake of all humanity, please leave Wordle alone. Joining me today for the interview is Allison Dillard. Allison is a math professor at Irvine Valley College. She is the author of a number of math books, including The Love of Math Journal and Crush Hypothesis Testing. Allison is also the host of the Allison Loves Math podcast, and that is how I became familiar with Allison's work, as I am a subscriber to that podcast, and I love listening to it and, and learning about math, all things math with Allison. So I uh, would encourage you all to do that as well. So Allison, welcome to the Tom Shimmer podcast. Oh, thank you, Tom. It's I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to have you here. I feel like I maybe need to consider a name change. Maybe I should change my podcast to Tom Loves Assessment or something like that <laughs> in terms of because I like the way the uh, the name of your podcast rolls off the tongue. So, uh, you know, looking forward to digging in. Math is always that, um, you know, it, it is often a polarizing topic in education, the way people respond to it, the way students respond to it, the way parents respond to it. So I want to jump right in and get started with one of the biggest ideas, of course, has been, um, you know, in, in emerging in recent years, and, and certainly that's the concept of, you know, people who always refer to, oh, it's the new math versus the old math. I find the reference kind of funny in a way because I kept thinking to myself, I don't think the math has changed. I'm pretty sure the numbers still work out the way they've always worked out. But I, but I know what they're re referring to, of course. They're referring to the different ways in which math is taught, the way math is sort of learned, the way students absorb it. So from, from your perspective, what are the essential elements of a modern math classroom, modern math instruction. No, I think that's such a good point because you're right. The math has not changed, right? <laughs> multiplication is still multiplication. Addition is still addition, right? Yeah. So none of that has actually changed, but you're right. The way that 
the way that we're teaching math has changed or, or we're, tr we're trying to improve it, right? So the old way of teaching math was really simple and straightforward, right? You share a math concept in class, you know, you do an example of it, um, and then you have the students practice. Right. And that's a really solid way of teaching. Right. And a necessary way. We need to explain things to students. We need to have them practice. So it does have some of the really important elements of teaching that are still a part of new math. But I think what we're trying to do with modern math um, instruction is to improve upon that. Right. To say, you know what, we can do that. But there, there's so much more that we can do. And if if we consider all of the. Um, the math anxiety and the, the hatred of math that's out there with students um, and parents and, and even some teachers, right? We know that there were some things missing from the way that we used to teach math, right? And so some of the things, you know, that, um, that are emphasized now are sort of that difference between um, conceptual and procedural, procedural understanding of mathematics, right? Because before there would be a lot of, um, you know, just repetition and repeating the procedure, right? So the students would know what to do, but not necessarily like why they were doing it, right? So it's, it's and it's tricky, I think sometimes to get students to understand both, but I know that's one of the things that we're emphasizing now. Another is, um, another is communication, mm -hmm. right? Because I, I, if you remember, um, you know, growing up learning math, I mean, at least for me, we never really practiced explaining what we were doing, you know? And so, so that whole skill set of discussing mathematics was not necessarily taught. And that is something that honestly I'm seeing so much. I see it with my kids and I love it so much whenever they come home from school. And, you know, my first grader will say like, oh, I did this, you know, in class. And honestly, like the next thing he always follows up with is, and you wanna know how I did it. Right. And then he shares his thought process with it. And I love so much that we're having this new generation of students who are always thinking about, well, how did I get to that answer? You know, and um, that communication aspect is definitely part of modern math instruction. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Your first grader knows you're going to ask anyway, so probably just <laughs> offers it up ahead of time. Uh, you know, the, one of the ways that I've often talked about it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the, 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 the way that I've sort of talked about math, modern math instruction, and I think unfortunately for parents, they, they talk about the new math, but I think it's the difference between learning to do the math versus learning to understand the math, like knowing the mm -hmm. math versus doing the math. Is that a fair way to kind of look at how math has evolved? Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, I teach, I teach math at the community college level and I teach a lot of remedial math classes, you okay. know, so it's with students who didn't necessarily place into transfer level math, right? So they're the, the students with a lot of math anxiety um, and who need a lot of refreshers on the basics. And I think, you know, a really good example that I've come across over and over is, um, mixed numbers, I think would be one, right? When they're taught mixed numbers in elementary school, right? You know, you're changing the the um, whole number, you're multiplying that by the denominator, you're gonna add the, the numerator from the fraction part of it, right? And then you put the whole thing under, over the denominator, right? There's there's just a quick little process. I'm doing a horrible job of explaining it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a quick little process that's very easy to, to replicate. And once you practice it, you know, five or 10 or 15 times, it's very easy to go through the motions of it, right? Yeah. And so what I'm seeing in college a lot is the students who, who knew the process of it, but had no idea why they were doing that process, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that we were taking that whole number and we're writing it so it has the same denominator as the other one and why we need to have the same denominator in order to add two fractions, right? So that sort of deeper level of understanding for why you're doing the procedure is really important. 
Yeah. The unfortunate part around, uh, well, I have a rule, by the way, Allison, when, whenever, uh, never do math publicly. That's kind of the rule I have for my workshop, uh, workshops or anything like that. So that's one of my rules. So don't worry about uh, the explanation as you're going <laughs> along there. Um, but, but again, it's one of those things where math was so often taught about follow the procedure or, or the trickery, you know, multiplying, you know, by nine. And mm-hmm. there are, there, for example, there's that trick where, you know, take one off the number, you know, nine times six is you take one off, it's five, the, the digits add up to nine. So therefore it has to be 54. But that, that's a shortcut to, to, um, to getting to understand. So I think, I think that's a, a really important shift that we've seen. And, and I don't think that shift is unique to math necessarily in that in so many subjects, standards are getting more sophisticated and therefore we're expecting students to do a deeper level of thinking. One thing that I absolutely encounter a lot when I'm working with math teachers from an assessment perspective is this kind of if-then approach to the overarching mathematical practices that are often emphasized uh, throughout the standards kind of leaves them stuck in a way. And here's what I mean by that. Some teachers will say to me, and this is not most or many, but some teachers will say to me, you know, Tom, how am I supposed to get the, the students to the mathematical practices? You know, things like constructing a valuable argument or, or critiquing the reasoning of something. How do we get to those practices when my students can't even solve basic equations or they struggle with adding and subtracting fractions or basic skills like that? But we know, of course, you and I know that those practices are transferable and they actually represent a deeper level of understanding and the deeper side of mathematics. Now, Obviously, and I know this question is a bit long-winded, but I want to set you up for your perspective here. So we know to think critically, you have to think about something. There has to be substance there. There has to be some competence that's necessary. But from your perspective, when you think about those mathematical practices that are longitudinal and they kind of transfer throughout the entire subject, regardless of the content, what's the best way to incorporate those practices into math instruction? I think that's a really good question. I don't know that there's one best way or or if there is i don't i don't want to claim that there is right okay, um, because okay. different different things work for different teachers right um and even you know as as an individual teacher you'll find that different things work for different classes different groups of students different subjects um and you know addressing the the issue of foundations right because I, I know that's mm-hmm. something that i've struggled with at so many teachers um you know, struggle with is, you know, we get students into our math classes who don't have the foundations they need to succeed in, in that math class, right? They've been passed along too many years and, you know, they're they're in calculus, but they don't know algebra one basics, right? Sort of at, at the extreme. And so um, I guess, you know, a general answer to that would be um, the, the best way to do it is to get your teachers comfortable with experimenting how to incorporate the mathematical practices, understanding that, you know, the first thing that you try might not work, you know, and if you try lots of different things, you'll find what works for you, right? And so, um, you know, I think one one of the things that you mentioned was the constructing viable arguments, right? And critiquing the reasoning of others. So basically, you know, explaining what you're thinking um, and talking, learning to talk to other students about what you're thinking. And you can do that with students who are, um, behind who don't know their foundations. In fact, that can be really helpful. And you can start those conversations around the mistakes that they're making, right? Mm-hmm. Students can learn to talk about their mistakes, right? Um, and ask questions about them and have conversations with others um, about how, how to fix it and how to do things correctly. Um, that's helping them immensely, right? While also helping them to, to learn how to communicate about math. Mm-hmm. 
you said something there about knowing foundations, and I mentioned that, you know, having that foundational piece, and it, and it just made me think about how do we tell the difference? How does a math teacher, because we know mistakes are inevitable, you know, kids are going mm-hmm. to make errors, it's going to happen, four times three becomes seven, that happens, that doesn't necessarily mean I don't conceptually understand what I'm doing. It just means that I made a simple mistake. Is it that simple that I look for simple mistakes versus egregious misunderstandings? Or where does a teacher draw the line? Like how would a math teacher know that despite the errors, the student still has that foundational piece versus they don't have the foundational piece? What are some of the indicators that a math teacher might look for? Well, my background in that really comes from tutoring. I did a lot of math tutoring starting in high school, through college, and throughout my 20s. And one of the things that I found was that my students always, always would come to me and say, well, I just make careless errors. You know, I, I just make careless errors. And that's the reason there's, you know, obviously I know, obviously I know how to add. Obviously I know how to multiply. If you're in higher levels, levels of math, it's, you know, obviously I know my order of operations, mm-hmm. right? Because when they look back at it and somebody explains it to them, they say, okay, that makes sense. I can understand that. But that's a different level of understanding than knowing how to multiply or do your order of operations mm-hmm. um, sort of automatically and without mistakes in the context of a larger, more complicated problem. Mm -hmm. So back when I was tutoring, one of the things that I would always do with my students was I'd say, well, let's look at all of your work and let's go through all of your mistakes. And sure enough, there were always these repeated mistakes, right? That they would make over and over and over again. So they would think that they say, I'm just bad at math or I have math anxiety or I make careless errors. Um, When really, when we could actually pinpoint, here are like the six things that you need to go back and work on right? Then all of a sudden, those careless errors start disappearing, right? They're able to actually focus on whatever the current material is because they're not stressing out in their mind about like, oh, what was six times seven again? Yeah. It's, uh, it o- is always an interesting uh, just idea around foundational skills because I think in some respects, we have fed this beast of perfection that uh, you just cannot, uh, if you make any errors, and, and there are times, I suppose, where in any subject, you know, there's there, there can be a kind of arrogance about that, that emerges, maybe infuses into the way that it's being taught. And it kind of makes me think about the lead into the next question I want to ask you, which is, you know, when we think about math, um, and I think if we're, if we're being honest, and we asked most adults, which subject in school, pound for pound, caused them the most stress and anxiety, it's undoubtedly going to be math, right? So we know that math explains the world and that's the importance of math, that math is everywhere. But we also know, and I love this expression, I can't remember where I picked this up, but I picked it up somewhere where someone said, you know, math takes their lunch money every day in some respects. And, and, and uh, you know, that's the way they kind of look at math and the way adults have looked at math. So this is sort of a two-part question here, Allison. First, do you think it's the nature of the subject itself or is it the traditional way that math had been taught before that kind of led to these emotional kind of almost primal reactions that students and adults have about math? So that's the first part. And the second part then would be that if that's true, how do we change it so math is not wrongly seen as this academic bully? All right. So your first question is whether or not you know, the math itself, right? Causes math anxiety versus right. how we're teaching it. That's the first right. question, right? Right. right. How, so, is, is it how we teach it or is it the nature of the subject itself that leads to those emotional reactions? Right. So I don't, I don't know if there's a clear cut answer there, right? Because I think, um, 
you know, when I think about just the, the nature of math, you know, I do think about public speaking for myself, right? You know, the first time I, I wrote a book and I realized that I was going to have to go out and, and talk to people about it, it was terrifying, right? And I never had any sort of, you know, um, education or, or bad educational experiences around speaking, um, but just the idea of it terrified me. Um, and and so I, I do think there could be an element of that with math, right? You're looking at numbers and you're looking at variables. Um, so I think for some students, you know, there could be um, just a, a natural reaction to that. But mm -hmm. I do think a lot of it can come from how we're teaching math and what the specific experiences are that students have had. So one of the, the very first interviews that I did on my podcast was with um, Professor Maria Ryan, who has a PhD specifically in math anxiety. And mm -hmm. one of her research papers that she did was talking about um, the, the effect of talking with students about um, what caused their math anxiety, like what experience caused it and how, you know, basically, you know, what we ended up talking about was by by pinpointing, right, what was that bad experience? And a lot of times it comes back to like, you know, parents saying like, oh, they're just so bad at math or a teacher telling a student that they're really bad at math, right? Or maybe being embarrassed. Um, you know, there, there's so many different things that could cause it, but by being able to go back and pinpoint what that one experience was that mm -hmm. sort of kickstarted the math anxiety can help students so much because they start to realize that, you know, it's it's caused by something. It's not who they are, right? And who they are can can change their relationship to math can change, right? And so, sort of by identifying that, it can be really helpful for students. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it, 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 you know, for me when I was in school, I mean, I I did pretty well in math, and I liked math. And as I told you prior to our interview, that I had almost thought about becoming a math teacher and had taught math for a few years. Uh, in middle school math when I was an assistant principal. But uh, it's always interesting that, you know, the way math was taught before that it seemed like you were, I think the part of it is the nature of you're either right or you are infinitely wrong. And uh, <laughs> and that can be somewhat debilitating to people. And so I, I sort of feel like the way that math is being taught now in terms of critical thinking, in terms of, you know, explaining the math, understanding the conceptual sort of intricacies of, of why, you know, a squared plus B squared equals C squared or whatever it might be. I think that is lending itself to uh, maybe reducing some of the the stress about just simply focusing on right answers and and uh, and and not understanding the depths of the procedures or the the, the processes that you might go through. I'm wondering about now um, 21st century skills. You know, we talk about and you've mentioned a few of these, but I want to take a deeper dive into each of these as we think about some of the the big sort of 21st century skills that often get talked about, the four C's, if you will. Um, critical thinking is obviously all over math. We, we, you know, everything about math can be, can lend itself to critical thinking. And we talked a little bit about having those foundational pieces so you can, can think critically because thinking critically is analyzing, it's critiquing, it's hypothesizing, it's, it's synthesizing, it's doing all of those things that we often incorporate into math instruction. But I want to talk about each of the other big three, if you will. And so I'm going to do these one at a time, Allison. So let's talk first about collaboration. If we wanted to bring more collaboration into a math classroom, and, and I don't know that it's just specific to math, it's probably something you could do in any subject, but let's talk specifically about the math classroom. How do we bring, what do you, what do you see as the way that teachers can begin to infuse more collaboration into the math classroom? 
Well, collaboration is working with other students, right? So I think once yeah. we step away from maybe just the, the individual drills and worksheets, right, which are, are the easiest thing to do in math class um, and step into, you know, more sort of, um, I don't know, group, group projects, right? Whether it's a, a challenge question or just, a, you know, an open-ended question, perhaps math mm -hmm. relating to real life, you know, something mm -hmm. where they can't just answer it all on their own. And it's good to have different perspectives, um, you know, as you're working through solving some sort of problem, you know, that, that's, you know, hugely fun and also helpful for students, right? Mm -hmm. um, having those collaboration type practice, uh, projects. Now, that being said, I'll, I'll, I will admit from, you know, working at a community college, um, most of our resources that we have, you know, um, don't, don't really lend itself to those projects that have collaboration, right, and communication right. and all of those other things. And sure. so I, I was thinking back to one of the ones I did in my statistics class, which was a, a Powerball handout, right? And okay. it was, you know, we're looking at the lottery and, you know, Basically, should you should you put money towards the lottery or should you you know save it and invest it, right? And it was very open ended, um, and it was actually it was actually helpful that I didn't um, I didn't actually do the work myself. I didn't have a specific answer, so there really was no way for me to to guide them through you know the the different steps. And it was um, it was very open ended and helpful. And I, I think the challenge with doing those sorts of things in math class is that we we have so many different subjects and that we need to get through in a given semester, right? That it can be mm -hmm. really hard to lose like a class towards something like this. But at the same time, it's really good to expose our students to these different types of projects. And mm -hmm. so um, I'm trying, sorry, I got off on a, a random tangent. No, it's there. okay. It's okay. No, this is good. This is good. Is, is to try it right yeah. and not that like a powerball handout is is exactly the the thing that everybody should do in statistics but i think that that sometimes you know getting out of your comfort zone on the assignments um and trying something new and understanding that some students might get frustrated with it you might not introduce it the best way the first time um but just mm -hmm. the fact that you're trying something different um is helpful um for yeah. both the students as well as for you yeah you know, as you were responding there, it also made me think about the opportunity for students to simply hear from others, you know, mm -hmm. because I think one of the things that maybe some of our students who might initially struggle with some things conceptually is they don't have access to how maybe some of our stronger performing students approach a problem. And by putting them into a collaborative team and having them do a think aloud about how to approach the problem, you may even just simply provide opportunities for students to get access to other students thinking about how they would approach a problem. And that could help them build foundation in that as well. So it may not even have to be about a project, but uh, thinking on more of a micro level that maybe it's just an opportunity for them to talk about their learning and talk about how they would approach the the, the subject area or the, the problem or whatever the case might be. Um, can we talk a little bit about communication? You'd mentioned this earlier in, in uh, in our conversation, just about incorporating more communication, um, formal and informal, what, what would that look like in math? I mean, obviously we know when you're answering a question, you are in some ways communicating, but we're obviously talking about some different ways of communicating in a math classroom. So is that about the explanations or, or to, let me, what does that look like in a math classroom? Yeah, well, going back to that statistics example, I, I think there's a lot of different benefits, right, to learning how to communicate you know, regarding math. And, you know, I, 
I like I like what you were saying actually about mm. it enabling different students to work together, right? And I, I think that's actually one of the reasons why I do these group these group assignments is because gosh, I always notice it's like the failing students are just drawn to the other failing students and the A students are drawn to the other A students. And it's like, well, how is how is the student who's not going to pass the class? gonna change right if all they're doing is working with other students who also don't know what they're doing and so right. that that is so helpful and I, I think that another thing is that um you know we're we're trying to teach more about growth mindset right and learning from mm -hmm. mistakes in our discussions and by having these discussions with our classmates you know whether it's a you know just about the regular homework assignments or about some different project that you put together, it's enabling students to share ideas that don't always work and learn that it's okay, right? It's okay to put your idea out there and have it be wrong because that's still gonna lead to somewhere else. And so I think that helps them to see um, the value in mistakes, um, mm -hmm. which is, is something that's really helpful for math, right? When students understand that, you know, it's supposed to be hard, it's not supposed to be easy, right? And you're supposed to make mistakes, right? right? It's not a bad thing when you make a mistake. It's part of the learning process. Um, and, you know, as much as we can tell students that it's okay to make mistakes, when they're seeing that their tests are 100% about not making mistakes, you know, there's right. this uh, disconnect between what we're telling mm -hmm. them and what they're seeing. And those um, assignments where you have conversation is just sort of a, a different way of teaching them that it's okay to make mistakes. Yeah, it, it often gives teachers access to student thinking, right? Having them communicate mm -hmm. why they approach the problem the way they did. For me, it you know, from an assessment perspective, it's it's you can see the answer is incorrect, but uh, or you can see that it's correct. But understanding why or how they approach the problem and getting access to their thinking can be very helpful for a teacher to understand what interventions come next and and how they can communicate. What about creativity? You know, we're not when I when we talk about creativity, of course, we're not talking about um, just something that's aesthetically pleasing. That's a very narrow view of critical thinking. I tend to adopt the Howard Gardner definition, which is thinking in ways outside of our habitual ways of thinking. Like, you know, Howard Gardner is famous for saying that, you know, to think outside the box, there has to be a box. So we have to know some things. But how do we incorporate, you know, outside of habitual thinking into a math classroom? What are some ways that we might be able to approach creative thinking in a, in a math classroom? You know, I think one of the ways is relating math to real life um, in an authentic way, right? And a lot of times that comes back to um, financial mathematics, right? Um, right? Which, you know, when I was teaching college algebra, I felt like that was such a fun class because it related mm -hmm. so much to, to math in real life. And mm -hmm. um, I remember I had a student who who came to me after class one day and, and said, you know, okay, I was going over, you know, what we were talking about, you know, with, with different equations, and I was trying to work out how long it'll take me to save up for a motorcycle. And will you check my math on this? And I thought, you know, that's a great exercise, right? Have every everybody saving for something, right? Everybody has some sort of financial goal, right? right? Whether it's to pay for college or pay off debt or, you know, eventually buy a house. Um, and so you know, I think the creativity can come from finding things that the students care about, 
Mm -hmm. right? Um, that are open-ended questions. Um, you know, they can go as deep into it as they want with the calculations, or they can look at it in a more general sense. Um, but I think that's, that's where that creativity comes in, which is a very different sense of creativity that I think you'll find in other classes. Yeah. Are there, um, you know, when you think about problems where there are multiple ways to approach the problem or, or, you know, that that's sort of, you know, how would you approach this problem or trying to adapt with under certain conditions or certain circumstances? Certainly I, I don't know specifically what I'm, talking about because I'm not a, you know, a high school or a college level math teacher, but conceptually I'm thinking about, you know, problems where there are multiple ways to approach the problem, or there are some, maybe some or unorthodox ways to approach a problem. Can you, is that something that you could see incorporating uh, as students move into higher levels of, of, I mean, you could probably incorporate that into younger grade levels as well, but I'm just thinking about as math expands for students and, and getting into some of the, uh, into pre-calculus, calculus, et cetera. Um, do you see that as something that might be able to be incorporated into a classroom? Yes. I think one of the things that I found very helpful about that, um, the lottery example, um, mm -hmm. was, you know, when students presented the different things that they did, some groups, like they dove deep into calculating the, the probability that they would win, right? Over a certain <laughs> period of time. Um, right. Others just talked at length about, you know, all of these assumptions, you know, what are the assumptions? It's a very vague question, right? You know, how long are, mm -hmm. how long are we doing this? You know, how much money are we making? What rate of return might you get? Otherwise there were so many unknowns that they were discussing. And so, mm -hmm. um, the, the really cool thing about that, though, was that when they shared what they had discussed, you could see that there were so many different ways um, to tackle the exact same problem. Mm -hmm. Money, money and sports are a lot of ways in which, you know, are ways that we certainly can enter math, right? There's, there's kids say, I can't do math, but they can calculate you know, the wins above replacement for their favorite first baseman on their team, or they can calculate someone's uh, efficiency rating in the NBA, or look at, you know, all sorts of statistics or think about from a financial perspective, right? Money seems to, uh, money and sports seem to be, <laughs> seem to be some of the entry point for, for students when it comes to math, for sure. Even if they say they can't do math, um, they, they typically can, and that might be the point of entry. So finding those places to, to bring some of that authentic, uh, authenticity into, uh, into instruction. Okay. I want to finish up here talking a little bit about, you know, we, we've kind of danced around. You've talked about that lottery uh, idea. And I want to think about project-based learning or inquiry-based learning, because certainly we are seeing uh, many teachers these days incorporating very student-driven, student-centered approaches to, to learning. But often again, uh, often not always, but, uh, you know, a lot of math teachers will tell me that, you know, that doesn't. Tom, that doesn't really apply to math or that, you know, you can do projects in social studies and history and you can do projects in ELA and science, but that doesn't really uh, apply to mathematics. I don't agree with them, but but that's sort of the assertion. So what are some ways that that projects or inquiry-based learning approaches can be brought into the math classroom kind of seamlessly and naturally in ways that sort of enhance the experience for students? Right. So I think when we hear teachers say that, you know, the, the projects aren't relevant to math, you know, with they maybe don't realize or, or aren't actually saying, but what they mean is that they don't they don't know how. Right. They don't know how to they don't know what project to do. They don't know how to integrate it into the class in a way that's useful. Um, they're, you know, probably, you know, thinking, gosh, if I tried to do something like that, where do I even start? Where do I learn about it? That's so much time. I don't have the time to prep something like that. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so I think there, there's a whole lot underneath that that maybe they don't realize, right? Um, right. And and so, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I did a podcast interview with a couple of math professors um, from Slippery Rock University, uh, Janet Asher and Jeffrey Messett. And they they have this um, statistics project that they do. And, and basically what they do in their math class is they use statistics like as a tool to help students become better citizens, right? Mm. So they whatever their project is, it's actually a larger project with an organization in the community. Um, and they create a math project with this organization that is something that will like benefit the community, right? We're analyzing data for an organization um, on something that will help them make some sort of decision. Um, and so I think, I think it's absolutely possible to create really powerful projects and experiences for students in the math classroom. But that being said, you know, I think that, you know, for them to do something like that, right, to spend a lot of their time in class um, incorporating a project like that, there needs to be support for the teachers in order to do that, right? And so I think, you know, at their school, they they have an office, they, they have the support of the department, um, as well as just, you know, people helping them to, to develop these things. And so, um, you know, I think when teachers are reluctant to do that, you know, a helpful thing to ask is, you know, how can we make them feel safe trying something new, um, you know, especially given the fact that, you know, if we're doing a, a project and students aren't used to it and the teacher isn't used to presenting it, it's possible that you'll hit a train wreck of a project in there, right? And the teacher needs to feel like you've got their back if it doesn't go well, right? That is the growth mindset that we try to teach our students about math, right? You make a mistake, it's okay, you learn from it, you do it better next time. We need to make it similar for teachers, right? It's okay to try that project. If it didn't work, you learn from it and it'll go better or you'll do a different project next time. Yeah. Sometimes I think the word project gets in the way of some teachers <laughs> understanding what we mean, because I think that the the quintessential project is that we've constructed something that, you know, we come to school Monday morning with the volcano or the castle, or, we, you know, we've created this tangible. And I think when we talk about a project in math, it just makes me think of a deeper dive, taking a more expansive sort of deeper dive, because you're right. You look at, you know, whether it's in politics, where we look at you know, statewide or national polling or provincial polling or wherever we might look at, you know, understanding what our margin of error represents. There, there are so many ways that you can analyze the, you know, dissect uh, data as an example and taking a deeper dive on that is, is another way to incorporate projects in the classroom. So I think really, I think a lot of the key is just expanding, you know, the, the understanding of what we mean when we say these things so that math teachers have the opportunity to, to not have a narrow view. And I, and I don't know that they do. I just hear these things occasionally. And I just, you know, think it's important that we, we try to help, uh, you know, help them understand that it, it isn't just this narrow view of building a diorama in your, in your math class. <laughs> There's a lot more to taking a deeper dive. Okay. Uh, two questions left, Allison, as we, we finish up today. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here, but these are two questions that I ask everyone I bring on the podcast in an interview. Um, and here's the first one, and you can take this in any direction that you'd like to, but the first question is, educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? So, you know, since I started 
writing math books. I've I've gotten this opportunity to meet so many other you know authors and and bloggers and speakers um, in the math arena. And I realize there's there are so many people working so hard, right, to to improve how it is that we're teaching how it is that we're teaching math. And you know I think you had actually talked in a, a recent episode, right, about um, the timeline for change, right? When you meet with schools, you know, early on, there's the early adopters who are really gung-ho, but then there's those teachers who are more reluctant, right? And that that gradually changes over time. Right. And, you know, I, I related to that a lot because I see that so much in math specifically, right? We've got the early adopters and we're so gung-ho and we want to change everything, but it's, it's all of... Um, um, it's those that are more reluctant, right? The, the um, late adopters, if you will. Right. Right? And so I think the thing that keeps me up at night is how do we make it easier for those late converters, right? How do we make teaching growth mindset um, easier for them, right? To, to see the, the value in it, to see yeah. how they can do it effectively in class. Um, how can we bring the, those project-based learning experiences, right, um, to class? You know, how do we help them to see the value in it and give them the confidence to, to try it, right, and have a growth mindset about mm -hmm. trying it in their classroom? So I think, um, you know, when it comes to teaching growth mindset um, across a school, right, um, or a district, right, keeping that in mind, how can we, you know, make it easier for teachers, I think that's going to help it to, to catch on. So that's, that's kind of the, the question yeah. now that, that keeps me up at night. Yeah, yeah. I think everybody who's involved in trying to initiate and sustain some kind of change in a school is always concerned about how do we make this more accessible? How do we how do we give people opportunities to enter safely into this change process and let them get messy a little bit with the change? Mm -hmm. Okay, last question, Allison. Uh, it's a question about success. Uh, it's a pretty simple question. Um, if a random person stopped you on the street, looked you in the eye and said, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? I think it would be, are you making the world a better place? Right, and it doesn't have to be something big, you know, one student or one class. Um, one department, right? Um, if you're doing work that's that's leaving the world a little better off, you're being successful. Yeah, I think that's always a great goal. Is to, uh, I think that's a great definition of success. If you're contributing and you're and you're leaving the world a better place, I think that's a wonderful place to uh, to finish up today. Uh, listeners, you can definitely follow and you should follow Allison on Twitter. Her ha handle on Twitter is at uh, Allison Loves Math, but loves is spelled L U V S. Uh, you're not making this easy on people, Allison. <laughs> uh, but on Instagram, it's the same handle, except loves is spelled L-O-V-E-S. So it's at Allison Loves Math on Instagram. Loves is spelled the proper way, I suppose. And on Twitter, it's at Allison Loves Math, L-U-V-S uh, is how we spell loves. Allison also has the Allison Loves Math Facebook page. And of course, you can subscribe to the Allison Loves Math podcast. I will have links for all of that. Uh, in the show notes uh, so you can connect with Allison that way. Allison, thanks for, so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me here, Tom. This was, this was lots of fun. Um, and I just want to say that I really, really enjoy your podcast. You, um, you are putting so much helpful information out there for educators. Um, and I'm really honored to, to get to be a part of it. Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you saying that. Thanks, Allison. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, 
I want to continue to explore this idea of trauma-informed assessment practices by highlighting a few big ideas about trauma that are coming clear to me as I read the book, What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. Now, if you're new to the podcast, I would encourage you to pause right now, download last week's episode, and at least listen to the Assessment Corner segment. You can fast forward through the other two parts if you need to or want to. Listen to them later, maybe. But part one from last week is where I talk about the emotional side of assessment, and this will help make this week's content make a little bit more sense. Now, the title of the book I'm reading right now, What Happened to You, represents the overarching mindset that we should adopt when it comes to trauma. Namely, rather than asking what's wrong with you when a student acts in ways that are counter to social norms or in ways that are out of proportion to the circumstances, we need to start asking what happened to you. Now, last week I talked about Hendry Weisinger and J.P. Polly Fry and their research that surrounded pressure and the difference between stress and pressure and how conflating the two is one of the reasons why people, not just students, why people act in ways that are out of proportion to the circumstances. Now, in this book, Dr. Perry highlights that all brain function depends on the state we're in and that the continuum literally from the brainstem to the cortex explains why we act the way we do, when we, especially when we've experienced trauma. Our state of being drives our brain function, and our brain function is what drives our behavior. In other words, as we move from one internal state to another, there will be a shift in the parts of the brain that are in control. So when we're in our, at our most relaxed, we are in that calm phase, right? And this is where we are so relaxed that we can let our minds wander. And this is often where people daydream and think internally, right? We are operating from our cortex. Dr. Perry calls that the smartest part of our brain. And we are at our most reflective. Now, sometimes we are on alert, okay? And this is where we start to focus a little bit. And we focus on one particular aspect of our external world, right? So we go, we go from internal to external. Something happens, we kind of go, hmm, that's interesting. We're also operating from our cortex. And, and most, you know, well-regulated people can, can operate between the calm and alert stage almost their entire day. But here's where we flock, if you will. And we ask the questions of others, like, is it just me? Did you notice that? Am I misinterpreting that? Is that something I should pay attention to? So we get alerted, and then we start to seek confirmation from other people to say, am, am I crazy, or, or did I hear that right, or what, what is the case? Okay, so then from there, there's the state of alarm. So sometimes we're not just attentive and alerted, but we are challenged, or we're surprised, or we're threatened, right? So now we start to think more emotionally. We act less mature, we say things we regret, and we typically argue through emotions and things get a little personal. So here's where we're operating in our limbic area, right? And this is where people typically kind of freeze and are alarmed and startled and we're just sort of stuck. Then there's fear. When we experience fear and we're facing a real threat, we start to focus more on the moment, our problem-solving skills deteriorate, uh, and, and this is the stage of flight. And we're operating from the diencephalon, and I, I hope I said that right, <laughs> uh, not an expert on the brain, but this is where, you know, we start to disassociate and we want to, we want out of here, okay? And prolonged extreme stress can leave some people stuck at this stage of fear. So remember that when we talk about prolonged stress. And then, of course, there's terror. And terror, real terror, has us at a reflexive stage and this is where we operate from our brainstem. And this is the stage of fight. This is where we're, we're just, 
you know, we're in, in, we're totally afraid. So now this is the part that I thought was so interesting um, in the way Dr. Perry phrased this on page 92. He said, the hypervigilance of the alert state often gets mistaken for ADHD. The resistance and defiance of the alarm and fear stage often gets mistaken for oppositional defiant disorder. The flight stage often gets students suspended from school, and the fight behavior leads to suspensions and maybe even down the road charges of assault. And and this is really critical. He just talks about how the pervasive misunderstanding of trauma-related behavior has a profound effect on our education, our mental health, and juvenile justice systems. Now, that's intense. So in essence, the more threatened someone feels, the more control of functioning shifts from our higher systems, like the cortex, down to our lower systems, which is the brainstem. Our brains are organized to act and feel before we think. Okay, so that's the first part. Now, here's the second part, and then we're going to bring this back to assessment. When a challenge or stress occurs, according to Dr. Perry, it puts us out of balance and our internal stress response is activated. Okay, so when someone has what Dr. Perry calls a neurotypical stress response system, there is a linear relationship between the degree of stress and the shift of our internal state. So imagine, if you will, a graph that has an X and Y axis, right? So our Y axis would be our state, and the X axis, say, is the degree of stress. A neurotypical response relationship would be a 45-degree diagonal line, right? The greater the stress, the more significant the internal shift, but it's proportional, and to the outsider, it would make sense. Oh, it makes sense you're acting that way because of the degree of stress that you're experiencing. But now someone who has a sensitized stress response system due to their history of trauma even the most basic daily challenges will induce a feeling of fear. Moderate stress can induce terror. So rather than a 45 degree angle, the line is going to sharply move upward through alert, alarm, and fear, even with the most basic, and what I mean by basic is as seen by others, the most basic challenges, it accelerates from there and then flattens at the top. So the line sort of bows outward, if you will. It sharply goes up and then flattens out near the top. So as a contrast, someone who is resilient would have the opposite line. It would stay flat for longer periods of time, only to sharply curve upward under the most extreme conditions. Now, for the student who has the sharp line and is experienced sensitized, they have a sensitized trauma response system, and uh, the line sharply goes up and their reactions are, are quite accelerated, that overactivity is going to be physically, mentally, and emotionally exhausting, and it's going to contribute to an array of problems that the student will have to overcome. Okay, so our response systems are different based on our history with trauma and our experience. Okay, so let's now talk assessment. Now, next week, I'm going to do a think aloud about some specific strategies, but here's what I'm thinking right now about trauma-informed assessment practices. I can see there being both an indirect and a direct impact on assessment based on a student's state. So let's first talk about indirectly. Now, it's easy to slip into a view that our classrooms are a vacuum. But in reality, our students are constantly impacted by the world around them. And of course, their internal brain function. Our students' sensitized response systems may be activated long before they enter your classroom. 
So for elementary students, it could be the result of something that happened between them and a parent or just prior to arriving at school that day, because usually elementary teachers have their students for the majority of the day. So they have a little more intimate awareness about what's been happening throughout the day as it unfolds. But for secondary students, high school, middle school, it could also be that, you know, an exchange could also be, you know, the parent or the situation at home, but it could also be an exchange or an incident that happened during the last class period just prior to arriving at your door. Now, being aware of the characteristics that typically manifest during the calm phase helps us recognize when agitation occurs or an aversive situation has occurred for that student. So it may not be the assessment itself, but the student's state will for sure have an impact on how well they're able to demonstrate their learning on an assessment. Something may have occurred, they hit that flight stage, and then they leave school. So it'd be easy for the teacher to say, or the administration to say, oh, for sure he skipped class because he knew there was a test today and he didn't study, he didn't prepare. He knew he was going to fail, so he just took off. Act like he doesn't care about school. Yes, the student left the school, but maybe not for the reasons you think. So that, in a nutshell, just being mindful that, you know, the indirect impact that, you know, our students state is going to impact how they can demonstrate their learning, even if it's not the assessment itself that serves as the trigger. There's that direct impact, essentially, in a nutshell, right? So I, I look, I know there's more detail and nuance to it for sure. But that's kind of what I'm thinking right now from an assessment perspective is be aware that when students hit that level of agitation, or they have an accelerated sort of continuum through the alert phase and then the alarm phase and then the fear phase, they may come to us not in a state of mind at all ready to demonstrate their learning. Okay, let's now talk about directly. Assessments themselves can be a trigger for some students, not just the feelings that are elicited during the experience, but the possible trauma that has occurred at home or within peer groups, you know, as a result of the assessment experience. A student may, for example, have a history of trauma from a parent when poor assessment results have occurred. So the trigger itself is the prospect of being assessed because of the potential fallout that could occur afterwards. The anticipation of yet another poor result could be a trigger in and of itself. I, I This is what I'm thinking here, okay? So this is just me thinking aloud. I, I feel like I'm onto something here, but I, I still have to crystallize these thoughts, you know, going forward. So fear can be very quickly induced if the student knows that a poor result on an assessment may result in psychological or even physical harm. So the safest route in their mind might be to skip the assessment altogether, right? Flight. Because, you know, flight is associated with the state of fear, right? So, so on the surface, it looks to us like the student didn't care about school. But really, that student is thinking about the potential fallout of another poor assessment result. So in their eyes, no result is actually better than a poor result. Yeah, I, look, I'm not having the ability and pretending that I can read every student's mind, but this is what it makes me think of. The prospect of being assessed triggers a disproportionate emotion and you end up eliciting kind of and an triggering the stress response system. So a neurotypical student will have a proportional response to the stress of that situation. But if they have a sensitized response system, you'll see an acceleration through different states, which quickly moves to the part of the brain that is more emotional, it's more impulsive, and it's more protective. So we on the surface may misinterpret that as the student not caring about school or overreacting or being dramatic or anything like that. 
but it really is more primal than that. It's a response. It's their it's their response system. And if they have that sensitized response system, you're going to see this accelerate quite quickly. So remember, our students will have an emotional reaction to the prospect of being assessed. Now, the question is whether or not that response will be productive or counterproductive, right? So now, students who have experienced trauma are more likely to conflate stress and pressure, like we talked about last week, therefore are more likely to escalate and accelerate their brain state from calm to and reflective to fear and creating that sense of flight, where they're acting with the lower regions of the brain, causing them to react more emotionally than cognitively, right? So for me, that conflating of stress and pressure and that overreaction really can often be sourced by the part of the brain that is in control of their behavior. So long and repeated stretches of stress and pressure associated with assessment could leave students in a perpetual state of alarm and fear, which will have a long-term impact on their mental, their physical, and their emotional health. Assessment can be a direct trigger of an accelerated state, whether it's an experience from the past or the anticipation of the potential responses that parents, caregivers, families, and other significant people in their lives might have. Again, assessment is as pressure-packed as anything young people experience, so that alone means we must be trauma-informed with not just the routines around assessment, but the execution of the assessments themselves. I think there are many things we can do to try to mitigate some of these issues proactively or maybe just reduce the intensity of them. So we're going to talk about some of the strategies we might utilize uh, next week. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you've got questions for Assessment Corner or if there's just suggestions you have or uh, guests you want to see on the podcast. A reminder to check out the show notes for the links for the upcoming Grading from the Inside Out and Standards-Based Learning and Action trainings coming this spring. Next week, my guest will be my friend, Tim Cavey. Tim is a middle school vice principal and the host of the Teachers on Fire podcast. So we're going to dig into a number of different topics. Tim is a real deep thinker about education, and I'm looking forward to that conversation as well. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. But anywhere you can leave a review would be most appreciated. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends and colleagues or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.